Hello and welcome to the very 57 the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, a podcast about all sorts of games that you can play at home on your table, in your home, in your table, over your table, across your table, uh, or at other places, but they're usually tabletop games or card games or board games, but not always are they, Quinns, who is no, with me. no. My name's Quentin Smith, and I'm joined by Paul Dean. Uh, That's me. Paul, you just sent me on a crazy flight of fancy then when you said, imagine playing board games in your table. And I imagined having a table so big, so wonderful, that you could just walk in into a cozy oak-paneled uh, chamber and start playing games. Secret compartments. Yes, secret compartments. I mean, they do have all those ludicrously uh, dorky tables now, don't they? The custom-made board gaming tables that have casino felt and cup holders and all that stuff. You and I don't have them because I like to think we're down-to-earth um, dweebs. Well, hold on. You were thinking about buying one recently or a while ago. I swear well, you were. Yeah, I was, but then I had talked to the gentleman and he said, well, it'll appear on your videos, so... Um, because if people aren't aware, shutupandsitdown.com uh, hosts all sorts of wonderful videos and written articles. Um, and he, this uh, Greek man, who, as far as I can tell, makes the very best uh, tables in the business, um, was saying, well, we'll cut you a deal, be half price, and uh, then they'll be in your videos, and that'll all sound good. And I went, I, okay, I'll do it. And still, it was like £2,000 or £3,000 or something. And then I just had a sort of moment of sanity uh, in my otherwise completely insane life and went, like, <laughs> this this is completely insane. Uh, you have been playing uh, the new edition of Citadels, haven't you? And uh, yeah. you've reviewed Fresco on the site and we're going to be talking about its expansions. Meanwhile, mm. I have played uh, I'm the Boss, which is a ludicrous game from 1994, a uh, quote unquote classic uh and i've also been playing century spice road a, a wildly exciting new release and i'm going to share my thoughts on that as well as what it is basically we've also got our uh, regular reader mail a couple of uh, hot little letters um smoking hot wow they're not porn though and we also have a folk <laughs> game of the month oh phew uh, i'm glad that you cleared that up <laughs> right what game should we start with buddy uh, I'm actually I'm really interested in uh, the two things that you mentioned because looking at them in the notes earlier I was I am curious about Spice Road because it looked really cool but let's talk about why you played how you found a game from 1994 and why you played that well I am a big fan of negotiation uh, games as you know Paul I am yeah uh, I'm born to be a loudmouth I will die a loudmouth I like yelling at my friends and telling them why they should make a deal with me. Um, so we've reviewed lots of nice negotiation games over the years, such as Chinatown and uh, sort of Sheriff of Nottingham. Uh, but I'm the Boss is a game by Sid Saxon, who is probably just about the most famous board game designer whose stuff we've never, ever reviewed. No. Uh, he was uh, a tremendously prolific American designer. Uh, he had 5,000 board games in his Brooklyn house. Interestingly, he was burgled, I think, seven or eight times in the duration of him living there. And never once did they take a board game, which is, uh, which is a lovely anecdote um but yeah he's designed dozens of games and uh, was uh, when there were a lot less board games in the 70s and 80s he was responsible for a lot of innovation a lot of the really good ones and one of his designs that has survived is i'm the boss uh exclamation mark um <laughs> this is I, I played this because it's supposed to be a phenomenal negotiation game and uh, I don't know about that, but I had a I had a really pretty interesting time. So um, the setup in this game, Paul, is that there's a very famous family and someone has died or someone's bought the company and everyone's trying to broker deal after deal after deal. And it's almost like you represent the... Um, uh, the lawyers that represent these different family members, okay, Paul? Mm -hmm. uh, because you, everyone starts the game representing one family mem family member, whether it's like Albert Adams or Betty Booth or whatever, because they're representing family member A, B, C, D. Um, but you might end the game representing more than one or none of them um, as these deals are brokered. So all it is is someone rolls a dice and you move the big dollar sign uh, token. This game is a ridiculous celebration of like how awful money is. And the token moves a certain number of spaces around this hot purple multicolored board. Um, you land on a space and then that player has one of two choices. Either they can try and broker the deal that's depicted on the space. So maybe it's a deal that needs like A, B, and D. Um, or they can just draw three cards and everyone has a hand of cards in the style of Cosmic Encounter, which just are so much bullshit. 
Um, so if you try, if you choose to broker a deal, then immediately it's up to whoever's representing the players who are like A, B, and D um, to come together and agree on who gets what money because the deal on the table might be $12 million and you have to decide how many millions to give the players representing those characters. Mm-hmm. So, so far, so simple. But where things get unbelievably stupid are the cards. Because, I mean, I'll just, there are only like four or five kinds, but one of them is just like, um, you go on holiday. <laughs> like, so if, if Paul, maybe you rep- you're representing client D, and so I turn to you because you're the only person around the table who can represent client D. And I go, Paul, how much do you want? And you go, five million. And I go, that's ridiculous. I'll give you four million. <clears throat> then maybe you settle for four million. But then someone around the table immediately plays the aeroplane card on your family member, Paul. And suddenly you have lost all ability to negotiate for them. Wait, wait. Um, yes. What? Well, so... Like I'm uh, suddenly on holiday? Yes, they lit- it, yes, it is a card where you are now on holiday and immediately, if you imagine that I'm on the phone to you, immediately I just get a dial tone because you've gone to Bermuda or whatever. Um, so in, in everyone's hands, they also have cards representing the different family members. So um, uh, if I was trying to negotiate with you for D, someone else might play a D and then suddenly I... Ha- the two of you can each give me what I want, which is the acceptance of family member D. And so uh, it becomes a case of the lowest bidder to try and broker a deal with one of you. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's fine. I'm imagining some of the complications of how you could have trust issues. Yes. Um, The main thing is that uh, in this deck of cards, there are also cards that just say, I'm the boss, okay? And the way that this works is if I'm brokering a deal between like five people or whatever, and I get all the way through negotiation and I've negotiated quite a good deal, um, I mean, at any point in the game, anyone can play any of these cards that say I'm the boss and they and play immediately switches to them. So I can go put all the work in and give everyone like three million and then I get seven million for myself and it's just about to go through. And as I go three, two, one, someone jumps in there with the I'm the boss card and suddenly there's the players, there's, they're negotiating the deal and they have to negotiate with everyone all over again. So it's, it's like an ultimate trump card. Yes. And, you know, any players that would have taken their turns in between the two of you are just skipped. So it's it's a lot like, you know, Chinatown or any negotiation game meets Cosmic Encounter um, or Chinatown meets a whole load of bullshit. And it was really quite good. I, I meticulously brought it out in front of a table of players who were all, uh, you know, noisy, competitive people. And it was the thing that's good about it is it is absolutely just a take that card game, which lets players, you know, pop cards down and be like, no, this deal's broken or no, you can't play this turn or no, now I'm playing instead of you. Um, but the game is structured such that anytime any of those cards hit the table, it's funny as opposed to just annoying. Um, you know, there's only four or five kinds of cards, so you're never caught off guard by like uh, rules or cards that uh, totally disrupt how you play. You're always mm-hmm. aware of what can happen, and it's just when players choose to do that. Um, so yeah, utter chaos, uh, very goofy, um, absolutely merciless. Um, but you know. In terms of letting players be merciless, it's one of the fastest ways to achieve that that I've ever played. This is interesting to me because when I think of like social negotiation type games, I don't think of going back to the 90s. I think of those as being a sort of a thing that are a lot more common, you know, nowadays. They're more contemporary. So it's curious to think about one made in the past and I I don't want to seem horribly biased but my instinct is to think well it won't be as refined or it will be a bit clumsier but it doesn't sound too much like that was the case you know I think a lot of the the classics that did survive in the 80s and 90s um, were actually very smooth I think about Reinach Nitzia's earlier stuff like uh, Ra um, or Samurai and I think about um, you know the Sid Saxon games that have survived and I think the classics that did make it like you're completely correct most games from the 80s are nonsense but the ones that have survived all these decades tend to be very very smooth like smooth shoots that players can just slip down and experience something Um, and I'm the boss's that it's like do you want to argue and yell at your friends and be petty and then this is just a very quick simple and uh, it's the most elegant box of inelegance that i've ever played (laughs) Um, how how did you come across it though is the thing because it's now 23 years old 23 years old uh almost as old as me uh that's not true no it, it was just people were talking about negotiation they called it one of the classics of negotiation and i can 
kind of see why. Um, because it didn't have a gimmick. It's an it's a product from a time where um, you didn't need a gimmick, I suppose, because there just wasn't that much competition. It's just what if players were arguing and trying to broker deals, and then there were a load of cards that let you disrupt those deals in funny ways. That's it. There's no. Um, it's not set in a fantasy universe. There's no mechanic no one has seen before. It's just very straightforward um, uh, card play and being a dick, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, yeah. And so yeah, if people enjoy negotiation and just kind of laughing, then I'm the boss is absolutely something that I could see myself recommending within that very specific set of circumstances. Um, but. I want... Ooh, let's lead up to Fresco. Why don't you tell me about this uh, new edition of Citadels, then? One of the this first new- games we ever reviewed. Yeah, yeah. The, the the first game in the first episode is... Citadels is still a game that I really, really like, and I still have a copy of it with me, and it's still something that I bring to new people to play with them, to try and get them into games and to see, you know, a card game as being... See board games as being a bit different and seeing, uh, you know, initially a card game as being a different bit different because i think it's a game that you can explain very easily in a round of play and people sort of immediately seize on the concepts and they see all the possibilities so i was so why don't why don't you do that right now buddy put your well cards where your mouth is well 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 i was keen that like there was a new edition coming out i was pleased to see that happen because this is what happened fancy fly have made a new version of it and it comes in a bigger box and it has uh, a lot of very good updated art, which has, uh, rather than like m- mostly a collection of old men, it's got a collection of all kinds of different people of different ages and ethnicities and appearance. And it's really nice to see they've really made an effort to show like a cool arrangement of people. Um, and I was immediately baffled when I opened this box because it's been sat in my stack of new things for a little while. And I thought, what's in here? This box is like three times as big. And immediately, two thirds of the box were just raised areas that had nothing in them. You're so it was like this weird, cheap illusion where I opened the box and then the space inside for the game components was exactly a third of the box, the same size as the previous Citadel's box <laughs> anyway. Right. So I was like, oh, okay. Mm. Um, and it's mostly the same when you actually get into it. They've added an extra um, roster of characters. There are nine sort of basic, there were eight, and then expanded to nine basic characters that you can play in the game, roles that you can take on. And then most of the additions of the game started to include the expansion that had another nine characters. And then this new version has another nine, which is cool because that's 27 different characters. Yeah, and they're all interesting. They add uh, cool new stuff, like you have a magistrate who can put down warrants that sort of possess... um, people's land or you can have rather than just uh earn gold from districts that you build which is one of the main things that you need to do in the game to win you can do things like earn cards from them if you're playing a certain character which is really useful um you can steal other people's cards rearrange the cards that people have you can even i think be a witch who basically assumes somebody else's role which is uh a, a cool kind of thing and all of these are like, they are manifestly different and they, they bring something interesting to the game and that is great. But I, I feel really conflicted because I'm glad that it's back again and it looks cool and looks exciting. But no one who has Citadels really should buy the new version of it because the amount that is new in it, which is a couple of new city cards and a few new characters, is not worth buying a, like a huge big new edition for that is mostly an empty box. It you know just what I found out? Uh, cynical and sad. Uh, th- Sorry, what did you find out? Well, I found out this weekend that um, South Korea has packaging laws um, that mean there's some kind of ratio of contents to box that mean it's completely illegal to, for example, um, sell a game that whereby when you open it up and then when you get rid of all the cardboard and fluff, it's like there's only 20% of the box space taken up. That is oh, flat really? out illegal in South Korea. Yeah. Um, but I've been thinking about this a bit and the kind of uh, the creeping box wars. And there's a very funny thing that we've encountered where in America and Europe, um, it's, I think a lot of a lot in America, really, that board game boxes have just got bigger and bigger and bigger. 
um, to stand out in shop shelves. And yet, there's another thing happening at exactly the same time in the board game industry, where the really tiny boxes, especially the stuff coming out of Japan, like all the Oink games, like um, yeah. Fake Artist Goes to New York or Deep Sea Adventure, um, or even the games that come in the size of a stick of gum. I can forget what those are called, but if you Google board game stick of gum, you'll find those out. Um, the board game industry likes the really small stuff, and yet publishers are making the really big stuff, and it's like, we've... We've completely missed the sensible thing here, which is just to put games in the right boxes. That that compactness that you and I both love. I, you know what? I don't mind at all the idea of like seeing a really tiny compact box and being impressed at what might be in there and being like, oh, someone has fitted a cool game into a cigarette packet sized thing. That to me yeah. is interesting. And that to me is more interesting than, you, you know, there are lots of big boxes on shelves that I don't care about that. And I'm pretty sure... Most or all people who are really into games are not looking at stuff on the shelf and just judging solely by size. Sometimes we do want to buy something that is really big because we know what is inside is really big. But I think we're all too savvy to just walk into a game shop and go, this is 50% bigger than the other one, so it must be better. Well, you know, I, I keep do I do keep thinking about Summoner Wars, which is one of the most fantastic, smart, collectible games ever, but and how much that game was stymied by everyone seeing Summoner Wars' original tiny box, which had a paper fold out map board to play on and theoretically that's quite cool and it kept costs down but in practice I think it, everyone assumed myself included that Summoner Wars was not a grand or worthwhile experience because of that sort of tiny box but it actually was and ever since then Plaid Hat have released the big Summoner Wars master sets with the solid boards I suppose I don't really mind how big a game is I just like a game can have a big board or a small board or big cubes or small cubes but just make sure the box is the right size for that experience you know there's nothing Mm. worse than having a couple of things we do have a question about a box layout that really fascinates me coming up later in the podcast um but in general though um with citadels uh, you thought it was still a good game i still think it is very good indeed and if you've never played it before the new edition is great and it has even more in the box if you have, you, I feel sad that you're going to miss the extra stuff, but don't put down, what is it going to be, 30 or $40? Don't do that. Yeah, don't. It's it's madness. And besides, I had the old version of Citadels and very rarely played with the expansion anyway. Oh, really? Yeah, I only ever played with the original uh, eight or nine cards, whatever it is. It's just that felt like an incredibly solid set to me. No, that's fine. That's, that's fine. <laughs> Oh, okay, you don't agree. Let's move on. Um, so this week on the site, you reviewed a uh, European-style uh, strategy game called Fresco, didn't you? I did, like a very budget Doctor Who. I kind of went slightly back in time just before mm. Shut Up and Sit Down took off. Because uh, Fresco, well, yeah, it dates back to 2010, which is a year yeah. before we um, first put on pants and went outside and started filming. Um, <laughs> and it's always had quite a good reputation. And I actually picked up this copy of it a while ago. And then initially wasn't like, uh, had, like I cracked it open, looked at it, thought oh, it might be a bit too simple or not that exciting. And it took a while before I got it to the table. And I have to confess now that that was silly because I really liked it. And probably more than any other Euro-style game, like it's got some elements of worker placement and trying to deny, you know, collect resources, deny people other resources and making things. Um, It's probably like the least abstract of those games I've ever played because you you almost literally mix colors where you take cubes that are different colors and you're like, I've got a blue and a red cube and now I can turn these into a purple cube in my studio. And now I've got purple paint, which is what I need to do my job restoring a fresco or you know i need to get money so i send an apprentice to do a portrait commission and that gets me money or i get up really early because i can do more work but now i'm tired and grumpy i love and they're all you just explain that that to people and they get it and it's not like um, this abstractly represents a unit of time or work it's like here are your coins here are your colors here's your stuff it 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 just makes sense and then it after like a round of play it starts to take off and just fly at speed your review uh really read like a very kind of like gentle history documentary of you know and of course people have to get up early to go to market but then they get frustrated <laughs> and yeah of course if you're the person whose apprentices get up the latest then another one comes to work for you right that's another mechanic in the game because you have if, the cushiest job yeah if you you can send people to theater which is sort of the last thing that happens at the end of the day 
Um, and that, that makes everybody happy. Like it's for some reason, it's the only thing in that game world that makes people happy. Um, but if you make people happy enough, it basically sort of unlocks another apprentice. I don't really know what the end game explanation is, but, uh, maybe, maybe you're so nice. You're such an exciting studio that someone else turns up and they agree to help out because they think your working conditions at your startup are so cool that they come oh, along. It's totally um, it's totally that. And then you have an extra person who uh, you place on your board of actions because you have this board of actions that are like, let's go to market and let's restore the fresco and let's mix some paints. But you can divide people between them as you want. So you can do like a whole shed load of painting this turn or you can do a whole shed load of shopping or, you know, whatever. The, the problem being that if you specialize too much, you might, you know, uh, get tripped up by people. It's, you know, it's about kind of hedging your bets, but that's nice. Because yeah, if people want to play, sorry, go on. No, 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 you finish, you finish. I'm just oh, excited no. to point people towards the full thing. I was just going to say, in, in a worker placement game, where often, you know, if you someone does a thing, you don't get to do it. It's more about you can try anything you like. You just might not be able to do it as much as you want to do it. I think I felt similarly um, playing Lancaster, which I want to say is also um, from just before Shut Up and Sit Down was released. And I did a review of uh, Lancaster yes. on shutupandsitdown.com. And again, that was one of those games that um, existed before worker placement had become this mechanic that had you know, slaughtered all these other board games and climbed to the top of the bodies and, and set down a throne there. Well, it, it was just this b- blood-soaked king that everyone had to respect. Because Lancaster has the worker <laughs> placement where um, you can send a worker to somewhere to, to a castle to get a thing. But if another bigger knight comes along, then, of course, you have to leave now because you're not important <laughs> enough. And then you have to go to another castle and you kick someone else down and it's constantly just um, different hierarchies kicking each other down the road and it's really funny for that reason and and a different puzzle and it felt like fresco just deciding where to send everyone in the city is a similar thing like just a a new take on something before conventions had been settled it does feel like that yeah and it's it's so interesting to think that you you know you're you're balancing like the the earlier you get up uh the, the more you can trump other people but the more that tends to screw you next round because you tend to end up uh, spending more money at the market for the resources you need ah. and tiring your people out. So there's elements of like you do need to plan ahead because you're like, okay, I can spend around like really getting a lot of money this turn with the hope that I can buy a bunch of paints next turn uh, with hope that I can restore a bunch of the fresco the turn after. But you, you can never do one thing sort of too much or for too long. But again, that, that's a concept that's kind of quite easy to explain to people and it makes sense as they play. And you see them, you know, even trip themselves up where they grab a load of paints and then start mixing them. And they're like, oh, I've just mixed all of my basic colors, so I have no basic colors left. Yeah. And it's great that I've got loads the- of purple and stuff, but I can't actually, like, to win this tile, I need one yellow and, like, one green, and I've just used all my yellow to make green. And you're like, well, there you go, you did that, you did that yourself, in fr- like, you saw that happen in front of you, and you've made that choice, and you learned that mistake, and I, I like that, that's so, ah, it's so Oh, oh just- my God, Paul, you and I agreed that that's the best <laughs> thing, there's no better way to get people into board games than, like, you know, teach them very simple rules, and then let them trip up their, like tie their own shoelaces together and then they'll go but I've tied my shoes together and you go yeah that yeah <laughs> look, look what you've done <laughs> I think people become emotionally invested when they make their own mistakes and they yes. make their own realizations about the game and it's uh, and like yeah all those all those times where you teach skull to someone and they play skull which Paul and I still love to pieces and they go there's oh, no game wow. here yeah, and you go yes point. there is yes there is keep playing and they play and they go there's no game here and you go keep playing <laughs> And then they t- play another two rounds and they go, oh my God, um, because they've seen the game. If, po- if people would like to see my review of Lancaster or Paul's uh, review of Fresco, they can do that on shutupandsitdown.com. But Paul, I know, I know, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. that Fresco has loads of expansions and you didn't mention these in your review. They're podcast exclusive. What does Paul Dean think about Fresco's expansions? Which, if I'm not mistaken come in the the box of fresco that you can buy is that right the yeah it's now i i don't think basic fresco is even around now it now just comes as a big box because the expansions are all quite small and they're all optional uh and there's just three of them in there but they're all they're all sort of fairly good two of them i think are very good and another one is fine and i'll get to like 
I'll do them in order I think of like least exciting. Okay, sure. Because uh, there's there's just a thing where you can, uh, as you fill in this fresco and you uh, you use various paints and colors, there's a mechanic called the bishop's re- request, which is one of the mini things that basically is like, oh, well, you used a certain amount of these colors, so you earn extra victory points because the bishop wanted lots of green. So well done. Here's a bonus tile. And that sort of encourages you to work in certain directions um which is it's fine you know it's nice to not just have certain objectives but maybe like earn a cool bonus because you used a bunch of certain paints okay you, i'm not very exci- paul i'm, no, I'm not excited by this it's okay it's an extra thing to consider uh if you want people to consider more stuff what is better quins is more colors no I can, paul, you're, paul, you're a paul. little bit keen on that aren't you i feel I mean, so stupid talking about this but i really like it well <laughs> i've read your review paul and like the presence of you know uh, a color being missing that you need sounds incredibly so, stressful and the idea of going to market and going do you have any red and they go there's no red there's and no then red. you lose your mind but we had the opposite in one of the games we played where we had one market stall that was only selling red in the final round of the game. And it is the worst thing when you're like, the game is about to end and literally everybody playing was like, oh, I can do this thing if I just get red. <laughs> no, if sorry, I can do this thing if I just get almost anything else. And there's just this one market stall full of all the different kinds of red. Like I've got lots of red. I've got some red. I've got like a little bit of red. You've got to imagine uh, all the because it's fresco, right? So all the Italian apprentices coming down and yelling in like incredibly like uh, emotive Russell. Italian. <laughs> uh, um, but so, and I shouldn't be excited about this, but brown, brown is in the game now. If you oh, use the wow. color expansion wow. and pink, and you get this An expansion by, adding brown, <laughs> right? You can blend purple, which is a secondary color, which you've already had to make with red to get pink and you can blend uh, orange and green which are both secondary colors to get brown so, so that's brown like is four, the rarest color right that's four like primary cubes that you burn to make one single vital cube that if you can use that at a certain part of the fresco to restore it you get something like i think it's 24 points which is nuts compared to other tiles at like five <laughs> and seven but that would take you so long and you bet everyone is competing to be the first person to like to make, make some brown, brown. and you'll because you you hide the cubes behind your screen but you obviously you know you take them out as you cash them in oh no someone reaches out and they take that brown cube and they put it behind their screen and you're like what <laughs> When, when are they going to get the brown? They're going to. They're trying to do the brown. When are they going to do the brown? So you have to try and get up early because here's the thing: <laughs> the turn order affects. I feel so stupid about this game, but Stefano, I really like it. Stefano, have you heard? Petrullo has a pot of brown paint. <laughs> oh no! Then, we have to get up at three a.m. I think we've just lost our whole Italian and Sicilian audience. Uh, yeah, sure, and probably some of the South American. Yeah, I don't know. Oh God, but but Quins, but but so because the 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 time that you get up in the day isn't just like the time that you go to market; it's the time that you do everything. So you go to market first. You mix your paints first. You d- do frescoing first. <laughs> so like you you're in this state where you want to get up early just so you can do that one thing first, even though you might not want to go to market first. And you might you know what so I, it's so silly, I, but you end up doing these self defeating things where you're like, I just want to do this one thing before you do it. And <laughs> rest, I, I'm not going to spend any money at the market. I just I just go there and I. I I shop at a stall, but I don't buy anything because that closes a stall, which is a jerk move. But you can do that. You can basically go to a stall and just close it before other people. You know, it's ah, oh, it's such I, a jerk game. What I think is really cute about this is so many games have like mechanics of uh, like Yamatai, which I talked about last uh, last episode. And, you know, oh, well, the number on the card you play will determine your place on the turn order track. You know, like, mechanics that affect turn order later and they're kind of a consideration. I really love this thing in Fresco mm-hmm. of, like, everyone deciding how early up, how early to get up of just, where do you want to be on the turn order? And you go, I want to be first. And the game goes, okay, you can be first, but everyone's going to hate you. <laughs> you know, like, it seems 
Very easy, very gentle, less gamey, you know? It's, again, it's just so relatable. It's so petty and relatable. And it's exactly. like a thing you could do that you would do in real life is get up at, at 5 a.m. to try and get to a place first just to be be an idiot. But I you, mean, well, you know what I, I like about this is when we reviewed um, and talked about Alchemists a while back, which you and I quite liked, and people oh, in the yeah. comments were... Com- we're comparing Alchemists to Fresco because it's another game of people getting materials to like and racing to get materials first. But whereas Alchemists is a game about science that makes scientists all look like incredibly awful chances, um, Fresco is a game about artists that just depicts them as hating having to get up early. Like they're they're both fun kind of uh, reflections on the people who you're playing. And the thing is, I'm pretty sure like you you get sad if you get up at seven a.m. in the game, which doesn't. Like, that's moderately early, but it's not the worst time in the world to get up. Many people get up at 7 a.m. and they are fine with it and they don't get incredibly sad. If yes, memory uh, not you and me, though. You and I do get up at ridiculous times. Is there a third expansion, Paul? Well, so I've left what I think is... It's the most fun to last, um, okay. but I think it's also the best of the mini expansions. It's a studio expansion because what usually happens... For when you allocate your apprentices, you can put some of them in the studio and usually they just earn three coins per person who's in the studio and it represents that they're painting portraits of people and that's how okay. they earn their day-to-day money. Um, and that doesn't in any way affect anyone else and it doesn't matter what time of day you do that and it's just it's just like a, almost like a dump mechanic. It's like, well, you know, just to keep my coinage going, I'll send one person off to do that this round and that gives me... You know, a certain amount more or two people. It's great. It's like the least developed part of the game. But now there are specific people, there are specific cards that turn up every turn who are people who are looking to have their portraits painted. Okay. And so you can win those cards, you can win those specific people. And painting those people's portraits gives you a bonus. Some of them are just a one-time bonus of like you get a chunk of cash or uh, you get to do something with the, the weird bishop guy in the game or you get uh, like a one-time happiness bonus. And those are all useful. They're cool. They're an extra way for you to get something else from doing out that action, which is great. A couple of them are just, and it's probably deliberate, but I feel that they're slightly or considerably more powerful where they just give you a constant rolling bonus throughout the game like one one person i don't know why they do it but they just constantly pay you money once you've painted their picture <laughs> you're so a patron maybe they're, they're your patron that maybe they are but as you probably guessed you suddenly you're like i'm gonna get up really early today so that i can paint <laughs> this man's picture so I don't care about the fresco. I don't care about colours. I don't care about right. This guy he wants a picture painted, so I'm getting up at five a.m. to snatch him. <laughs> Except you can't because someone else is fourth first in the turn order right now, and they get up early, and then they uh, am I going to see you at church competing for the bishop's favour? To no, you know, f- that I'm going to paint this guy's picture. <laughs> run across town at 5am knock on his door <laughs> do you want your picture and just drag him out and put him in the studio and paint it and be like this is great I'm gonna you know he, I've got a permanent happiness bonus for the rest of the thing it's it it's just it's like it perfectly fits a hole in the game and it fits the theme really well and it develops something that was just undeveloped and it's it doesn't matter that it's actually quite a tiny change it just makes perfect sense and I was really pleased by it really pleased that it existed wow that is funny yes the idea of banging on his door and waking him up before he's even away i heard you wanted your picture uh, which is I, I mean the guy he there's a guy who gives you a permanent happiness bonus and he's an actor so i guess he's theater related but i don't even really quite understand how that makes sense why are you always happier after you painted the actor <laughs> Is the, is the actor uh, happy anymore after you pulled him out of bed before dawn? I don't know. It's a game that's... It sounds like Fresco straddles that line between... Um, that, that we also had in Suburbia, where, like, if a theme matches a game too perfectly, then it, it's <laughs> actually less entertaining for us. But if a game goes is matches the theme, like, 90% of the time, yeah. then the other 10% just goes into, like, Uncanny Valley, which is usually what enables players to make jokes about what's happening. Because I don't think that's um, really what Suburbia is trying to do, and I don't really think that's what Fresco is trying to do either. I think it's trying to just be kind of somber and sensible. Yeah, but uh, but it fails, and to everyone's benefit. Um, shall I talk about the last game? We, we've saved our most hyped game for latest. The most hyped game. So I was really interested in this. Uh, well, I so think, was I. Did and you still write, am. One of us put it in the game's news because it looked like a really cool thing on the horizon. Yeah, so Century Spy 
Ice Road is the first game to come from Plan B Games, who uh, are a studio that got born out of a corporate merger that is far too boring to talk about on the podcast. Um, <laughs> but yes, Century Spice Road is uh, used to be a game called Caravan, and it's the first of what I believe is a trilogy. A, a trilogy or a series whereby we've got Century Spice Road now and then in like a year or nine months or whatever we'll have Century uh, Furs Trade or something yeah, I just made that up but and each will be standalone game of trading but you can combine your multiple Century sets to have like a supersized Century game which um, sounds interesting what, which sounds very interesting I'm really interested in these board games that become series that acknowledge the fact that board gamers you know become fans of things and buy expansions and all that good stuff. So Century Spice Road is a game about four things. It's about cardamom, uh, uh, cinnamon, uh, saffron, <laughs> and oh, I've forgotten the fourth one. The um, four genders. Some other, the four genders of human beings. I, of course, as everyone knows, is cinnamon. Am, whatever. <laughs> am cinnamon. <laughs> um, so the game starts with, um, it's quite a nice box. I'll say that much as well. You get four little plastic bowls. You put all the cubes representing the four spices in the bowls. You get large oversized cards um, and you get some golden coins with C's on I mean which C is for century and these are actual metal coins which are kind of out of place because all the other components are like you know wood and cardboard and then you've got some metal um, but what you're doing, Paul, is you start off the game with, like, a deck. Every player starts the game with a deck of two cards, and the card, the, fir- uh, the first card is, like, get to cardamom or whatever. And the other card is upgrade two cubes. And so um, maybe it's your turn, Paul, and you play get to cardamom, and then on your next turn you play upgrade two cubes, and you that would, they enable you to take your cardamom and move them move two cubes one <laughs> to, step to take up my what to take your cardamom and then to <laughs> take a cube from cardamom to saffron to cinnamon or upgrade two cubes to you get the idea hopefully and you I can just, only ever hold it sounds te- like you're occasionally adding an extra syllable to cardamom i am having some real difficulty and the reason is that um century is a very simple game because the other thing you can do on your turn is cash in a bunch of spices for one of the scorecards, which might want, like, cardamom, saffron, you know, some spices. Like, a card wants a set spread of spices, and you cash them in, you get the scorecard. When someone has six of these scoring cards, they end the game, or however many cards it is. It doesn't matter. The point is, the other thing you can do is spend spices, God, this entire game is like a tongue twister, to acquire another kind of spice card. So maybe it's a card that lets you get um, uh, saffron, or maybe it's a card that lets you upgrade one cube three times, or a card that lets you trade two cardamom for for saffron and a cinnamon, whatever. Um, So the, uh, the fourth and final action you can do on your turn is just pick up all the cards you've played. So it's kind of like, not so much a deck builder, because you don't have a randomized deck, but a hand builder, where mm-hmm. you might spend spices to get a third card, then a fourth, and then you play a card, play a card, play a card, then spend your turn picking everything up. But the game is all about what cards you buy from the shop. It's about when do you just say, oh, sod it, I'm going to pick up all of my discard pile, um, uh, rather than just sit there playing all the crappy cards that I own. Because obviously, if you have four good cards and three crappy ones, the question is, do you play the four good ones and then pick them up again? Or do you play four good cards and three crappy ones and then pick them up? Am I making sense? Yeah, yeah. Which so is it, fine. It's, it's about ho- you sort of, you judge your own timing in a way. It's a lot about timing. A lot like cooking, it's a game where it seems to be... Um, uh, Century Spice Road will appear to be all about um, acquiring the good cards and getting the right spices. But in actuality, just like cooking, Century Spice Road is all about timing. It's about when are you buying good cards versus um, actually picking up cards you score? When do you go for the high-value scorecards versus the low-value ones and try and rush the game out? Um, what represents a good card? Because here's the other thing. There are always like a whopping seven cards available to buy but you buy from left to right. So if you buy the leftmost card, that's fine. That's actually free. But if you buy the card one in, you have to put one of your spice cubes on each card to the left. So the further along the track you want to try and buy a card, the more expensive it is. And then as you place these cubes on cards in the shop you don't want, anyone who later buys cards gets all the cubes that are already on them. So yeah, it's all about timing. It's all about identifying when cards in the shop are cheap enough for you to buy them um it is good is the other thing i will say about century um it is a game from an up-and-coming designer um who i will uh research in the future and put his name in here 
It's Emerson Matsuuchi, the American designer who also designed the fascinating but flawed Spectre Ops. And it is strong. The The easiest example is, have you played Splendor? Oh, quite a lot. Splendor is a very successful Space Cowboys game um, that's sold a lot of copies. And that is a game where you are acquiring chips or spending those chips to acquire cards. Cards which are discounts on buying future cards. And you're trying to decide, you know, when to buy upgrades. It plays like a more complicated version of Splendor. Um, okay. That takes approximately 45 minutes rather than 20 minutes. Okay. Um, but... I would say, if Splendor didn't exist, I would be really excited about Century Spice Road. But there are two problems. The first off is that picking up tiny fiddly cubes... Um, wooden cubes are great in sort of resource management games where you don't actually have to touch those cubes very often. But every turn in Century, you're dropping cubes in bowls, picking them up. Um, and because they're quite small, that doesn't feel great. Whereas in Splendor, obviously, you're picking up those completely fabulous uh, weighted poker chips. Um... But the bigger problem with Century is it's like, in addition to being longer, and maybe that's not always what you want, it's like twice the price of Splendor, I think. And Splendor is getting a box containing four expansions in just a few months, I think. Um, so for the price of um, Century, you could get Splendor and the box containing Splendor's expansions. Um, and I think Splendor is a shade better, in my opinion. Um, I have, but- I've actually played it more it's one of those games like i first played it a while ago and i immediately talking about it now i miss it and i really want to play it again because (laughs) the more i've played it the more i've liked it and i realize now i haven't played it in a while and i need to check if anyone i know has it or i might have to accidentally buy a copy because you know what's interesting it's good and what's interesting about the um the modules that are coming in the expansion is there are four modules and usually with expansions it's like oh there's three modules and you can play with all of them just like you were talking about with fresco um with splendor's expansion they've done something a bit more interesting because each of the four expansion modules um none of them can be combined with each other um and you hear that and you're going to think oh well that's not as good but actually yeah it is because what that means is from a design perspective the designers don't have to make um expansions that are compatible and instead they can say they've said like well splendor is a really really strong game let's not mess with the core too much but let's give people four different ways to play that each individually are a different spin on splendor and not worry about um you know combining them or making some super game of splendor which isn't the point of splendor anyway no um, but in terms of expansions, I am really curious about what the second Century box will do. So if I'm a little underwhelmed by this first box, Century Spice Road, I'm wondering how it will combine with the second Sp- Century game. Although, of course, well, then we'll be in the difficult territory that if I like it, it'll be like, well, you know, to get mm, this fantastic experience, you're buying two full price board games. Which is, yeah, I mean, that that's the thing I would say. I am curious to see how all these jigsaw pieces come together but it sounds like you are just assembling an expensive jigsaw to perhaps make something that is good rather than good enough or great. Yeah, immediately playing uh, Century Spice Road, I was I was thinking, this is really quite good, and if it was £20, I would be able to recommend it so easily. If it was £25, sure, but I think it's like £35 or £40, and it's like... That is a bit too expensive for a card game, you know, especially one that's not perfect. And, and again, uh, to, are... to just pimp out Splendor, it's, I mean, it's smaller, it's cheaper, it's faster, and cool expansions is great, but I would tell a lot of people that they're going to be very happy with just base Splendor, and that works as such a complete, uh, perfectly formed petite package. Yeah, but um, if people are interested in Century Spice Road, then by all means pick it up. It is good. It is good. It's just... Um, you know, if you like savvy trading and that's why you're attracted to Century Spice Road, then I would say real savvy traders would look at it and, you know, shake their head that's too expensive and wait for that price to drop. See, Paul, that was a... That was a oh, God, was that rubbish? Let's move on. Put your hand in my mailbag for me a letter. Ooh, this week we're going to find you not one letter, but two letters. If you would like to send in an email to shutupandsitdown.com, hey, guess what? You can do that. You can do it through the power of email. And uh, the email address you use is contact at shutupandsitdown.com. It's do keep future. it short, though. It's the future. I've always said that you've, you have to be on email these days. Um, it's just it's vital for modern business. Um, Patrick Holt writes, Hi, folks. I recently rewatched your Virgin Queen review since you posted it to YouTube. Do you feel as intimidated by now? Do you feel as intimidated by it now that you've confronted Kingdom Death? Are there other games from your reviewing past that look different after seeing newer ones? Thank you for your work, Patrick. 
What do you think, Paul? Uh, are, are there games from our past that look differently? Are there reviews that you look back with a twinkle in your eye and think, what the what the hell was I talking about? There might be. First of all, it's, uh, it's an interesting question, and it's interesting comparing it to Kingdom Death because Kingdom Death is big, but I don't think it is... I think it's big and broad, but not too deep. Like, there's a whole load of different things in there and a lot of moving parts, but I don't think any of those things are too difficult to apprehend whereas i feel virgin queen's actually narrower but deeper does that make sense well it does completely because as soon as i read this question i was thinking about why virgin queen is so just i didn't i don't want to use the word awful but um the problem with uh war games is that war games care care more about accuracy than they often and uh, historical sort of flavor than they do about providing a solid game so kingdom death cares about like teachability it cares about you having a good time that's its goal whereas virgin queen you know has to simulate for example sieges because that is a thing that happened in history it has to simulate protestantism which is insane like every single catholic space in virgin queen has a tile that flips depending on whether it's protestant or catholic so you've got this mini pandemic game to do with protestantism mm-hmm. um and those aren't necessarily fun mechanics and but there's pages and pages and pages and pages of rules because the game wants to simulate this stuff and so it doesn't care how hard it is for you to learn because it's its goal is different its goal is to be a historical document if you get what i'm saying um but with regards to the second part of this question of are there games from your reviewing past that look different after seeing new ones uh yeah absolutely and that's something that i think paul that i didn't really consider when we started shut up and sit down because we thought oh this is great board games are evergreen and we'll keep selling as long as they keep printing them so people are going to keep watching our reviews over and over again um but the problem there is that you know our attitudes and our minds might change, but the review doesn't, which is, uh, well, it's not necessarily a problem, but it does mean that our reviews are interesting kind of time capsules of how we felt at a certain time. Yeah, it's, I I 100% agree with that. And I see, it's funny that you say this because it's related to a completely, like a thing I wasn't maybe even going to talk about or bring up, but it's been sort of a seed planted in my brain and growing recently when I was both looking back at a bunch of old video games because there is a Kickstarter for um, uh, like a remaking of the old British computer, the Spectrum. And people have tried to remake it before and had run into problems, but it looks like this time they're going to remake this old 80s machine that has 48K of memory and can run all these games. And some of them are very cool and like cool little bits of fun. And some of them really have not aged that well or were not that great. And I do wonder, obviously, people will find new things to do with it. But I do wonder if there's a lot of nostalgia appeal that's going to wear off very quickly because I was also going back and looking at old game books that I loved when I was a kid. Things like fighting fantasy adventure books and Lone Wolf and this and thinking about how much they inspired me then and how I might maybe try and write something about it soon but the the inspiration remains real and the things they encouraged me to do were very real and the feelings were very real but looking through some of this stuff even like rereading some samples I found online I was like some of these are quite good some of them are bad and they have bad writing and they have (laughs) bad sudden death which makes no sense and there there is some of them you can follow through and it's like it makes sense that you do this thing and this happens and then this happens later and some of them just don't and the the quality is all over the place and yeah things change and I believe our standards change and I believe that that's partly because much as with video games as more and more people make things and the quality rises and people learn lessons and they learn from things they've done wrong uh, we can't help but sort of have our reviews be at least somewhat ephemeral where you go back and you're like well you know I don't tolerate some of those things as much as i used to anymore but that's okay i mean it's in a way it's almost a good thing because these days i've played so many deck building games that like with a game like dominion i'll roll my eyes at it and say oh i'm, <laughs> I'm playing mystic veil now um and i'm more on mystic veil in the next podcast episode actually because i've played both of the expansions now um but and it's good um But for so many people who play Dominion or Star Realms or Hero Realms, um, sort of the entry-level deck builders, they'll say, this is great. And my reviewers online with me agreeing with them. And even though I'm tired of deck building now, it's better that my review is of me being fresh-faced because that's a more accurate review of Dominion. You know, most people haven't played 10 deck building games or 20 um, and gotten bored of the genre. 
So it's far superior that the Shut Up and Sit Down review online is me playing Dominion for the first time. Um, but that was just a little teaser because the, the the mailbag question I want to answer um, has been sat mouldering at the bottom of our mailbag for a while. And I'm glad, I'm thrilled even, that we <gasps> finally have the chance to tackle it as men with mouths. So this is from Chris Storch, and he writes, Shut up and sit down. As always, great work. Enjoy all that you guys do. So, part of the gaming experience is the setup and rules explanation to and for your group. One thing I've done for almost all of my games is purchase custom inserts. Many of these neatly store, but more importantly, facilitate easy setup play and cleanup. A great example of this is the custom <coughs> insert for terraforming Mars. It makes cube management far less messy during the game, not just storing the game. Taking a step back, board games seem to be trending towards more stuff. Example, Paul's Scythe review. More stuff can add to the quote-unquote weight of playing games. Your Scythe review made me think about how adding these custom inserts gets me gaming more. It's not really the kind of topic you guys seem to hit on, but it seems like it's becoming more of a thing in gaming. Or maybe I'm just a lazy fob. Keep up the great work. Chris. So I I initially read this email, Paul, and I thought, oh, well, that's, that's, you know, board game inserts, they're the most boring topic ever. But, you know, they exist and people can spend 10 or 15 quid on top of the price of a board game, putting in like a nice um, plywood insert, so which has perfect spaces for all the components. But his point really, really made me think um, that if you've, because you and I both have big collections of board games and, and you've had different collections of board games at different times in your life. And there's, there are those games that are great, like Dead of Winter or Terra Mystica, where you buy them and you love them, and then you tend not to play them again because setup is so long. And even just remembering how to play the game with all the components scattered over the box is so tedious. And so isn't... And then suddenly I just viewed these, um, uh, what, these inserts f- from a completely different angle. It's like, it's almost like that uh, buying a car. <laughs> I mean, I might be going mad here. But it's like, if you buy a car, then you should put down the extra money on, like, the little, like, the car radio, for example. That actually means you enjoy every drive ever. And similarly, what's the point of having Dead of Winter if you're then not going to spend the extra five or ten pounds on the insert that means you actually play the damn thing, right? So, I mean, yes, I agree. I It's very interesting that Chris mentioned Scythe, actually, because I don't think I said this in the review But a helpful thing that Scythe does, it has quite a lot of components in it, and it does come with a reasonable amount of bags and boxes and ways to store everything that does make it more convenient to break out and set up. And that is not a bad thing. Funnily enough, uh, Fresco, when I got that, even though it's this big box edition with all the expansions in there, came with a single plastic bag and a sort of a felt bag that market tokens go in so they get randomly selected. And that was kind of it. And you have a bunch of cubes that represent lots of colors and then figures that represent apprentices and then other figures that represent master painters and that cards and and it all just floats about. And it's not terrible, but it would be helpful if there had been a couple more sections in the box. And the first time, yeah, that I punched everything out and set it up, I thought, this is a mess. I just don't know what what goes anywhere. And I I don't, I don't know. Am I just, are we both, are we all complaining about a relatively small detail where we just should put in a bit more effort or? But I I mean, this is what I was... (laughs) I w- no, I would have agreed with what you just said a-, a second ago, but now I'm realizing, like, if you and I recommend, you know, supposedly the best game ever, and then we we play it a couple of times for review purposes, and then two years later, we've never played the thing, because putting it back on the table is so intimidating unless you have that initial push. Isn't that a worse game than something you and I review and we're like, yeah, it's okay, but we actually get it to the table more often? Like, Well, we we did this thing when ages ago when we did the Cyclades uh, comedy-style review where we said mm. no review will be complete without a look at the inlay of the box <laughs> because so many people uh, were... It feels like the least important detail, but some people get very excited about the inlay of a box and about whether things fit in correctly. And I have to say it's pretty low down my priorities as to where I like, you know, how I rate a game. I don't actually care that much about the inlay. But 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 it does help. Oh god, I don't know. Have I just become one of those people? I think this I think Chris Storch might be 
the the real secret genius here. I remember, I can't remember if I've told this story on the podcast before, but when I got Dead of Winter The Long Night, I was so excited and I spent upwards of 45 minutes bagging everything and to combine it all in one box with my copy of Dead of Winter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as soon as, and like when you put both of those games in one box, there is no air in it. You struggle to get the lid on. And I sealed it with everything in about 40 different Ziploc bags And as soon as I did, I knew I would never open that box again in my life. Um, Because the the misery of opening it up and putting all those bags on the table and having multiple different game modes all combined and two very thick manuals with different information in each one. You know what I mean? I was just going, no, this is <laughs> this is awful. I've taken a game that was already incredibly tedious to set up and made it 50% more tedious again and I'm always going to play another board game instead of this one. You know so, what? It is, it is something of a barrier, either a barrier to entry or a barrier to playing. It is, there is an element of that in there. Yeah, so yeah, Shut Up and Sit Down might have to significantly rethink its stance on, on Inlay. We might we might have to be the ones that lead the charge on this, Paul. <laughs> Folk game of the month. So here's a very interesting email. Uh, this is from a fellow called David Paul, who has uh, two first names, which is something I can very much relate to. He says, "Juggling is fun." That's how he begins. It's one of my favourite things. I don't it's the beginning of a people... great novel, isn't it? It's it's. That's classic Vonnegut right there or something, or uh, Hemingway. Juggling is fun, said Hemingway. It's one of my favorite things. I don't think many people realize quite how widespread a hobby slash profession juggling is. And I think juggling, by being quite prolific, but simultaneously being pretty hidden throughout the world, coupled with the fact that juggling is inherently pretty silly, is a fertile environment for the development of of a folk game. Okay, fine. Back at uni, I was a committee member of the Monash University Club of Juggling and Fire Twirling. Like, hang on, that's gone up a level immediately. <laughs> and at the at the end of every semester, I would run a games day. Many of the games we played were juggling endurance challenges or fun party games everyone could participate in, such as Limbo. But a couple of pretty interesting things developed at these game days unicycle jousting was always my favorite two unicyclists would try to knock their opponents off their unicycle using a pole with a pillow duct taped to the end however there is one juggling game which i feel has reached the illustrious title of folk game due to its pervasiveness in juggling communities i speak of combat juggling or club combat as I like the is- pause for, for drama after combat juggling. And what's great it's, about combat juggling uh, is whatever you're imagining in your head right now, it is that. It's, I, I, I can't believe that I haven't heard of this before. As a game, he says, it's basically just a jazzed up version of a balloon stomp. A game where you tie a balloon to your foot and try and pop everyone else's balloon while protecting your own. Everyone starts with three juggling clubs and the aim is to either knock clubs out of other players' patterns or force them to make errors while continuing your own juggling pattern. Last person juggling wins, so it's like juggle jerk or something. While doing research for this, I actually discovered that the World Juggling Federation... There's so many levels here. I discovered that the (laughs) World Juggling Federation seems to be treating combat more as a sport. But whenever I've played combat, it has always been more about seeing how long you can survive than, you know, watching the two best jugglers at the convention duke it out and be confounded by their skill. Love your website. I hope you've enjoyed learning a thing or two about juggling. I have learned so much about juggling just from reading that, just that there's this whole underground world of juggling and associated physical, you know, acts of great physical dexterity and perfection. It just sounds I mean, this like, is, go on, go on. It, this is the, the thing that people immediately need to do is watch some combat juggling on YouTube because yep. the people who do it are so good, it beggars belief. Um, now, uh, usefully, David has listed some, some key techniques you can do in juggling combat. I'll read out a couple now. You can lob a club really high, so you're left with one club in each hand, as if you're like dual wielding in D&D. And then you just have two weapons and you can go and whack other people's clubs out of the air. Um, you can steal another person's clubs. So if you just reach up and grab someone's club out of the air, then you start juggling four clubs, they're juggling two, which means they're eliminated. You can, and this is the really cool part, throw one of your clubs 
at someone else's clubs out of the air. And assuming yeah. you knock it out of the way, they'll be confused and you'll have broken their flow. And that means you're only juggling two clubs, but that's okay if you can run and pick up a club anywhere on the arena and return to juggling three clubs before the referees catch you. Right. Um, but of course, it, you don't have to bend over to pick up a club off the floor. You can kick it into the air if you're some kind of juggling maniac. So th- this is the thing is like it, it's almost like hit points or something. It's like you can you can steal them from other people. And then yes. you, having that extra club is potentially useful because if you stole, if everyone had three, you stole one, you have four. And then that also becomes like an offensive club that, that you can then deploy because you then still have three clubs. And the thing is, looking at it from a game's point of view, you know, as people who play loads of games, we can just look at this immediately and be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yep. All right. Yep. I see how that works. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, it's almost like watching humans grow extra limbs or like perform this. It's like watching octopuses fight. I really can't. It's it's difficult to express this using words, but if you can, for example, juggle your three clubs with one hand, you have a free hand to just be a jerk with, or hug players, or push them. And all of this, bear in mind, isn't taking place like one-on-one. These arenas will contain like eight jugglers, and you only have... Well, it's not even fair to say that you can only look forward, because if you're juggling, you're probably looking vertically upwards, so anyone can walk behind you at any point and shove you. And despite all of these ridiculous problems, you know, the match will go on for a minute or something mm, yeah it's and the thing is i guess that jugglers as jugglers i mean there's an amount of they watch their patterns but there must be an amount of certain things are instinctive and you know something's going to be in the air for two-thirds of a second so you have enough time to look at something or move or walk or and you you know watching some of these people do this there's clearly this amount of like they they have a level of instinct that allows them to devote a certain amount of their brain to goofing off and ruining things you know for other people (laughs) i mean it's i I, I like to think that all humans, if they work hard enough, will find a, an amount of brain power to devote to annoying other humans. That, that's my dream for, for the you human know, race. But you know, like something something that we you do enough, you get used to it. Like horse riding or driving a car, you could mm. eventually horse ride and play a lute, or horse ride and you know fire water pistols at people, or drive a car and adjust the radio, or drive a car and be James Bond and have gadgets on your car that allow you to do. Other, you know what I mean? It's that level of you get familiar with it activity so you you goof off in the act those were awful examples but you know what i mean (laughs) i'm surprised you didn't reach for you could be driving a car and riding a horse at the same time and what would that (gasps) there's a stunt for the next james bond film yeah i think the reason that this this is maybe one of the coolest folk games we've ever covered is, is simply that it utilizes um people who are already at the high level of their skill i suppose it's like the acting folk game we talked about a while back with actors trying to like you know i i got an email in our inbox that um from another actor in america who heard us talking about that acting folk game with players touching each other's but and then they have to deliver their next line screaming it and all that good stuff there's another mm. one where you have to put objects in each other's people's pants without the audience noticing yep um which is maybe not limited to like ice cubes um but it's these folk games are fun because they're people who take their profession to a very high level and then in addition to that they work a game into it it's someone who it's a it's a class of people who use the skills that only they have and turn it into a folk game, which is why it's such a delight to watch and read about. You know what? I think what when I was filming the Mythos Tales review, uh, and I had a scene with actual real television actor Bruce Harwood. Um, <laughs> I talked about the folk games because he, he's done a bunch of TV. He was in he's well known for being in the X Files, but he was talking about how he had to fall in a swamp for a MacGyver scene and oh, wow. various other things he'd done. And he's done a bunch, loads of theatre. And I was saying, did you play theatre games like this? And he was like, no, that would be terrifying. But we did things where, you know, you do a play over and over again. And I've heard this from many actors. You you can't do it the same because it becomes dry and you lose the ability to be inventive. So you deliberately just, you change things, but you don't necessarily tell other people what you're going to change. And as as an experienced actor, you know, you, you, you're able to some degree to just change your timing and your blocking. So you just say a line differently or you act like you've forgotten your line, but you haven't. And then you deliver it slightly differently, which forces the other person to be sort of somewhat put off. Um, you know, it keeps them on the, their toes and it's the sort of acting is reacting thing of everything suddenly becomes more realistic if you don't know what the other person's going to do 
even though you sort of do. Yeah, that makes sense. Weirdly, I'm reminded of um, Can't Cook, Won't Cook. Um, or Ready, Steady, Cook, even, uh, is I think what it's called. A UK um, cooking show which might have similar formats in other countries where you have the professional celebrity chefs um, who have to cook a meal uh, on live TV. But the way that they do it is by guest chefs, like sort of members of the public or celebrities, come up with just a bag of their favourite ingredients, which oh, is yeah. often like completely useless because it's like 17 onions and then a some ginger or something and then the, the chef has to cook a meal with those specific ingredients which is charming because it's just someone doing their best in a weird situation i mean i think i've talked about the shut up and sit down podcast before about how the best thing in the world is people who take their craft to the highest possible level and then what and then watching being able to watch them fail i haven't talked about that on the podcast i remember where i got that from now it's from a script i'm working on that reviews the great british bake-off like it's a game oh um, well, yeah, I tried to do it last summer and it was one. Of, it was a very tricky thing to write because um, it's a very complicated game to try and break down and review why it works. But hopefully when Great British Bake Off rolls around again this summer, I'll uh, be able to do that video this time. The hard thing is it's impossible to film. There's no footage of it on the internet. So really? it was a complicated technical process. Yeah, it's a very litigious um, production company that make it. So there's almost none of it on the internet. And what is there is quite low resolution. Oh. So I'll, I'll try and work out a solution. Um, if anyone listening to this wants to tell me how to get footage of the Great British Bake Off, I mean, I'm sure I can find it. I'm sure it's fine. Or, or um, works for the GBBO. Yeah, if anyone would like to get me on the set of the Great British Bake Off, I will get you <laughs> a pathetic amount of views compared to what you're used to. Um, and, but yes, before we sign off, my God, everyone should watch some combat juggling on YouTube and maybe share some of your favorite links in the comments because oh, oh, <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's, it's positively unsettling how good these humans are at throwing sticks around. I actually, I actually couldn't deal with it to some degree. It was too confused because there's so many things you have to watch because it's not like watching a game of football where the, the ball is in a certain place. And it's like, well, yeah. that's the focus of most of the action. It's like everyone is doing everything all of the time. Yeah. Can we agree, though, that it was more entertaining than many of the sports shown at the Olympics and more challenging? That might be a fact. Well, there we go. You and I should be put in charge of the Olympics, I think. Maybe that's something uh, next time you and I have a live panel somewhere. We can just do shut up and sit down, <gasps> redesigns the Olympics. We did the, we the, just... the thing with the money on the forehead. We can come up with more games. <laughs> yeah, we did. We can indeed. All right. We should uh, wrap this up. Paul, what are you doing now? Uh, I might go and pick up a copy of Le Havre from a board game shop near me because that is a game that's been around for a while as well that I've never tried and I've got a bit of satisfaction out of doing that recently. If you would like to uh, review Le Havre uh, alongside Paul, the way you do that is by searching for Le, L-E, and then the next word is Havre, H-A-V-R-E. You could buy that and you could be playing it in tandem with him. Imagine that. And you could compare notes when his review goes live. I am going to, I think tonight, play my very first Conflict of Heroes game, which is Ooh. a beloved um, World War II, um, or not even just World War II, but, but a beloved wargaming series that is supposedly very accessible, very thematic. But um, I believe uh, ooh, Academy Games has just published one about um, the war in Japan. I've got it. It's full of tokens and little villages and huts and rules for bullets. And I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of very excited. Okay, I, I'll be curious because you, you're not always a person who plays loads of war stuff, but I think you have interesting opinions on them. And we we do both like memoir, which remains a very good game. So Yeah, well, I'm hoping that Conflict of Heroes will be like what comes... I'm, we've already got a Conflict of Heroes review on the site with Matt Thrower being very <clears throat> enthusiastic about it. But if you've played some memoir 44 and you're excited for something a little stronger, then Conflict of Heroes is almost certainly what you're looking for. But I'll report back with my own notes. Cool. Okay. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Why don't you tell us what you're playing right now? Because if you're not checking the comments on these podcasts on shutupandsitdown.com, my God, you're missing out. Our commenters are truly fantastic. Pop by and uh, stay a while. Stay forever, hopefully, because uh, it's dangerous outside. Uh, goodbye. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.